0: This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Welcome everyone to the Football Odyssey. This is yours truly, Aaron Harris, and today I'm pleased to welcome Michael Oriard to the show. I'm sure as many of you know, Michael is a former professor at Oregon State University, as well as a retired professional football player and is the author of several books that have touched on numerous subjects within the realm of american football and how the sport impacts america from a cultural economic and even artistic standpoint his books include the end of autumn reading football king football and brand nfl we have a wide-ranging conversation today that dives into several different topics from michael's esteemed work And as you'll hear, Michael's academic and even artistic view of the game is truly one of a kind, and I can't wait for you all to hear it. As always, if you enjoyed the conversation, subscribe, share, and let us know what you think on our social media accounts, which can be found in the description. That said, thank you all for listening, and now, here is Michael Oriard. All right, Michael Oriard, thank you for coming on the show today. How are you?
1: Good.
0: Good to be with you, It's a pleasure to meet you. And uh, first off, big fan of your work. I've had the chance to read your essays and your books over the years. Uh, I really appreciate the artistic and the academic approach you take to analyzing the game. Sometimes it's a little hard to find, so I'm very grateful from that perspective. And I reached out to you because I actually just got done reading your first book, The End of Autumn, Reflections on My Life in Football which was published 40 years ago this year. yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, it's it's one of those memoirs. That's, uh, I always enjoy reading football memoirs, but this one was good because you really took your journey within the game from your childhood all the way to, you know, your career through the CFL and then how it would ultimately kind of craft your writing career and your, you know, career as a professor Uh, first before we go deeper into it and your career um what was sort of the motivating factor that you had to put pen to paper and tell your football story
1: well you know i had no motivation whatsoever i mean who who would care i i I was a special teams player and backup offensive lineman in Kansas city but um, my teammate you probably remember this before you were born but i'm sure you read about it my teammate jim Tyre Killed his wife and killed himself um, in 1980. So, basically six years after I left the Chiefs, and uh, it was absolutely stunning. And I wrote a piece about it uh, that ended up being published in the New York Times. And lo and behold, I got a uh, a letter. This is back before him. Mean, you got actual letters um, from a, an editor at Doubleday saying I. Are, are writing a book about your football life? Or, I thought, no. Uh, and it just made no sense to me until I figured out in correspondence with him that, uh, okay, so this would be the life, the experiences of an ordinary football player. You know, most football memoirs are extraordinary players. They're the stars. But this would be what what it was like for, for a regular football player, you know, we had some success and but nothing spectacular and all that. And so that's what led me to actually write. the thing.
0: Yeah. That's interesting. Cause like, whenever I'm reading the book, it's like, obviously you have like some memoirs about, you know, the hall of famers and everything like that. And then you have sort of a tell all, you know, like the Bernard Parish, David Megacy books that talk about, you know, the underside of the game, but this one, you have a very, uh you know balanced viewpoint about you know this is what football meant to me and it was great but there were also things that were a detraction as well and i think it was interesting how you kind of touched on both of those worlds at every level in your journey too
1: yeah i mean i didn't i didn't have an agenda so um i you know my challenge was to try to remember stuff
0: yeah Now, going back to the beginning of the book, when you talk about um, you know, your childhood and your introduction to the game, you, know, you talk about it in a way. You mentioned how you had played a lot of sports growing up, but you know, football in particular had this larger than life appeal to you. Uh, you know, there was something very grand and very heroic about it, more so than any of the other games or the sports that you had played. So, c- can you just sort of lay the foundation for the audience and explain, you know, how football at an early age had an impact on your life in terms of how you viewed heroes to a child, or the relationship it had, you know, with your father and um, relationship you had with your friends growing up? I guess sort of lay the foundation for you know football and how it molded your mind at such a young age.
1: Well, I I think most fundamentally, um, I was a younger brother. Um, My older brother was 19 months older. Um, I was, we both ended up 6'5 or so, but but I was big for my age, and, and he was more normal. And so I sort of matched up with him physically pretty well, but I couldn't beat him at anything. And, you know, younger brothers, you know... Are always competitive. You know, they're always trying to beat their older brothers and all that. So somehow I grew up with um, you know this need to prove myself that I think came from having this older brother that I could competed with all the time but couldn't beat him at anything. Um, you know, for for your listeners, you know, I I have I'm constantly reminded that at 70 age 74 my sense of the world is very different from that of anybody you know who uh, you know was born after say 1980 or so you know this was the era of the three tv networks the game, the game of the week and all that and so i wasn't surrounded by football you know the way a kid would be today but but football was part of my world you know there were sunday games nfl games and my dad was working crazy hours but and we sometimes watched them together, and, you know, the only teams you saw in Spokane, Washington were either 49ers or the Rams, and, you know, I became a Rams fan because they had the cool helmets with the, you know, the Ram mm-hmm. uh, de- de- decoration on, on the helmet, uh, and, you know, Washington State was the, the local college, you know, 80, 90 miles away, and, they had a guy named Keith Lincoln in the '50s, a great running back. And so I, you know, I just picked up the way a kid would do, you know, the you know, the, the kind of the sport uh, in in the world. Baseball was the big sport. I I knew all there was you know about baseball, all the statistics and Lou Boudreau and Walter Johnson, and you go back to the beginning. And I read books about these things and so on. Football wasn't like that for me, but football was was um, Well, you proved yourself, you know, and I didn't have a father I had to prove myself to, and I didn't really have a brother to prove myself to. I had myself to prove myself to, but it was, you know, kind of driven, like I say, I think, by having this this older brother. Uh, But, but, you know, you know, to to put a a simple word on it, toughness. You know, A, a kid gets this idea that. You know, if he wants to demonstrate, prove to himself or to anybody else that he's tough enough, you know, football is is one of the principal places where you do it. You know, and, and you do it in a safe environment, and you know, you're not you're not you know putting your life at risk, at least not very likely, and certainly not within your consciousness. But anyway, so you know, playing football, you know, as a way to, you know, to you know, to discover things about myself and to prove things about myself. Uh, You know, I think that's the way, uh, that's the way kids used to grow up with football. You know, now inundated with the media and all that, uh, you're more likely to grow up thinking you're going to make a million dollars or $17 million or whatever, and you're going to play on TV. You know, none of that was part of the world that I lived in, the football world that I lived in, but my football world was guy named Hoppy Sebesta across the street. You know, I was, I was maybe six, seven years old, and he was a high school player at the local Jesuit high school that I was going to be going to, and, and he was an all-city, you know, running back, and, and he was my hero. You know, it, it was a much smaller-scale world uh, back then than it is now.
0: Yeah, that's interesting how your experience playing football kind of parallels the evolution of the media Infrastructure, Right. Like you, you look to a local hometown hero that in some regards served as a little bit of an inspiration that you wanted to live up to, as opposed to who you would see on Sundays or on Monday Night Football.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I did see a little bit of it on, on TV and I was born in 1948. And as near as I can figure the, the, the first year season that I can kind of remember remembering. Uh, was 1958 and you know Billy cannon won the Heisman trophy for LSU and LSU had the Chinese bandits uh, and, and all of that stuff and like I say there's this guy Keith Lincoln down at Washington State but he was never on TV Washington State didn't get on TV but um, I, I guess already at age 10 I must have been reading sports pages because I knew who Keith Lincoln was you know and um, so, so you you, you you picked your heroes where they were available to you and you didn't know that much about them. And, um, you know, I, 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 I think I had a tremendous advantage coming from such a simple world for football to come to mean for me, what it did. Um, uh, I, if growing up today, it, it never would have played out the same way.
0: Yeah. It's just too prevalent. You know, it's like, you don't have like that imagination to kind of leave yourself in wondering, like I had uh, the chance to interview Upton Bell, uh, the son of Burt Bell a while ago. And he was talking about, you know, how the great it was to like listen to the monsters of the midway on the radio. You know, you didn't really have a face with the name, but you just hear the description and it kind of gives you like uh that fuel for your imagination, what they would look like if you never got to see them in person. Yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Your, your imagination was, was, uh, much more involved, but also your imagination was limited. What, what you could imagine, you know, the yeah. greatness you could imagine for yourself was rather circumscribed back then.
0: Yeah. Well, it's like, even when you look at like, and you've written about this, like the, uh, the pulp magazines you had from like the late thirties through the late fifties, you know, it has like these uh, paintings of, uh, you know, a fullback or a tailback carrying a football, like he's in distress, you know, almost like it's like an action story and it's cool to see like how like something like that i could see a kid reading in like the 40s or in the 50s thinking about you know a football hero that he looks up to that he has never seen in person maybe hears on the radio but he has like this image of you know a larger than life image of them in his head based off like the media he sees surrounding him
1: yeah yeah i mean a a, a football star was sort of like um you know a cowboy you want to grow up to be a cowboy yeah oh, you want to, grow up to be a football star they're kind of the same thing right <laughs> or at least in the world <laughs> yeah now
0: would you say that it was probably maybe like in high school in which not only the toughness part of football appealed to you but also you know the aesthetics and the artistry of the game oh no no no,
1: no. I, I i i tapped into that a whole lot later you know mm. when i was when i was a grown-up you know when I, you know, PhD from Stanford and looking about for things to write about and all that sort of stuff. You know, my, my, my world was the simpler football world that all kids in in small towns like Spokane grew up in, in the fifties and sixties.
0: Yeah. Well, that's when you talk about too, about like how you had to kind of channel that fear, like you're afraid of looking like you're afraid to your teammates, which is like an interesting dynamic, you know, obviously your teammates and you want to support each other, but you're also competitors in a sense. And, you know, there's a one job to be had for everyone. So you really have to kind of channel in that inner toughness and have to develop that thick skin, you know, obviously towards the other team, but also your teammates.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like for me, okay. So toughness was a big part of it, but like I say, um, it, it was proven to myself. Uh, and I was really fortunate that I didn't have a father mm-hmm. that had expectations that he dumped on me. I, I wasn't proving anything to my father. Um, uh, you know, I, I guess I was proving to, to, my coaches, but mostly I was to myself. But if the coaches didn't notice, then it, you know I needed that validation. But but uh, but it you know for me football through college actually was a real was a personal quest. You know a, you know a, a pursuit of, of dreams that I had that were private to myself. Um, and you know I like I say I think that was to my good fortune. You know there's. I don't know if the stories are quite as familiar today as they were when I was growing up, but the idea of the father who drives his son to uh, you know, either duplicate what he did as a young man or do what he couldn't do as a young man. You know, That was a part of the football world back then, but it wasn't part of my football world.
0: Yeah, even, like, uh, I mean, I live in Florida, and, you know, down south, you know, youth football is just as big as, you know, high school football in some parts. You know, like, they're already doing, like, summer training camps at, like, you know, six, seven years old. Um, uh, But but something that's interesting throughout the book is, like, there's sort of, like, this – overarching theme about and some of it is obviously driven from uh, jim tires uh, experience about how football begins to define a person to the point where it's only their identity and you know when you were in high school you talked about how you were a really good player but you had injury setbacks that looking back you would say it was a blessing in disguise right because it kept you like grounded in reality
1: yeah yeah and also too um, you know i had the good fortune to for, for me and, and i don't even know if this is possible Today, for a kid to get as far as I got, without being wholly committed to it from early on, you know, you know, I grew up. Yeah, you know, I never went to a summer football camp. Uh, you know, we didn't have. You know, like you're talking about with youth football, you know, we didn't have tryouts and spring training and, and all of that kind of stuff. Um, you know, I, f- football was was. was You know, a really important thing in my life, but it was in my life only, and it was just a part of my life. I I never, never had to make a commitment to football at the expense of anything else. And um, you know, as long as I can remember, I suppose there was a time before then that I'm not remembering. um, Football was never the most important thing in my life. You know, I always knew I was going to go to college. you know, once I got to college, I always knew I was going to go to graduate school. And I always knew that my, my real career was not going to be in football, if, even if football really worked out. And I think it's enormously more difficult to have that that orientation today. And and the danger for, you know, for somebody like my teammate Jim Tyre was that, you know, football was the thing that, that made his life meaningful. Uh, and then... It ended, and you know things went went sideways in various ways that I don't even know all about. Uh, But 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 his life, you know, peaked, plateaued, and then plummeted. Right, you know, and you know I finished football and completed my PhD and got a teaching job and had my real career, you know, for the next forty years. And uh, like I say, I don't think you get to the NFL you know, the way I did with, with football as a kind of secondary thing. It's, you know, a happy accident that keeps happening sort of deal, right? You know, I I, I was really, really driven in, in college, um, but I got to a point, you know, I was a walk-on at Notre Dame, and, and, you know, I wasn't, my career wasn't going anywhere, and I was having to think about, okay, is, is You know, should I continue to put all the time in on this and all that? And then I got a break and everything worked out fine. But, but you know, if you know, if if I stopped playing football in in uh, college, uh, I don't know exactly what I'd be doing. But it, you know, it would entail having gotten a graduate degree in something, maybe law school. You know, who knows? Who knows? I mean, you know, I always had the more important alternatives to my life. And then this really private, personal crusade of my own, you know. And uh, I, I don't see how a kid could have that kind of balance these days and, and, and become an accomplished enough football player to be successful, you know. How, 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 how do you become a football player today without going to training summer camps? And without, you know taking all these lessons and all, you know, all this stuff without committing yourself, seriously committing yourself to this is, this is my life's ambition and I'm going to give everything I have to it. Uh, you know, that's what it takes these days. And it didn't require that in my generation.
0: Yeah. It's almost like you really had to be a super athlete to be able to do all the other things and still be really good at one of the sports. I mean, obviously, you know, for like offensive linemen, they may do like weightlifting in the off season, or like be on the weightlifting team in high school. But I mean, that's pretty much just so they can continue their football workouts within the confines of the rules, right? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and, and you know, weightlifting was just coming in. You know, when when I joined the Chiefs in 1970, you know, they had the best team in the NFL. They just won the Super Bowl, uh, and my teammates like Jim Tired, you know, guys who were eight, nine, ten years old. I mean, Lenny Dawson, the quarterback had a nineteen year old daughter and I was twenty two years <laughs> old, you know. Yeah. They were from the third generation. Right. And they never lifted weights. They were just these big, strong men, you know, who worked construction in the summers and butt bales or did the, the sorts of physical labor that, that you know young guys did in in summers for for staying in shape. But but they didn't live, I could lift more weights than you know, than these massive offensive linemen on the team, but they were so much stronger than I was, you know, I mean, yeah. they were, they were just they were man strong, you know, instead of weight room strong, you know, yeah. but it was just starting, it was just starting in the sixties, the, the weight training for, for football players.
0: Yeah. I actually just did a, a doc, a short documentary on YouTube about Alvin Roy, who I, was he the coach for you when you were there?
1: He He was the strength coach when I was there. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's it's fascinating because uh, it's funny you mentioned Billy Cannon too because he was like one of the first people that did his programs in uh, Baton Rouge whenever he was coming up. So that's interesting that you were there at the same time whenever the NFL was starting to go that direction as well. What yeah, is-
1: it's funny. I remember Alan pretty well. I mean, he 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 was a I really liked him. We were kind of buddies a little bit, you know. And and I was undersized. I, I was like six five and a half. And I never played at more than 242 pounds as a center, you know, and, you know, that's inconceivable today, but, you know, it, it, it was possible then. But, but but the other offensive linemen, you know, on the Chiefs, you know, we had big offensive linemen and they were, you know, 260 and up, mm-hmm. you know, tired 280. Yeah, but but that was 260 or 280 on Thursday for weighing, and then it was 10 pounds more by Sunday. When <laughs> you took out your sweat vest and and you know went back to having a few beers and eating some food again, but uh, you know I was undersized uh, and I tried like hell to put on weight. You know, I, when you're in college, I drank Metrical, this protein supplement. You know, six cans of it a day. I went to bed <laughs> bloated. And I, and put on about 15-20 pounds, and lost them the first week in training camp. I just couldn't put weight on, and so here I am, you know, you know, hanging out on practice field with Alvin Roy. He never once, never once mentioned. Um, I don't even know if I would have known what he was talking about at the time. I mean, this is this is only 1970, but he never meant, mentioned steroids as so something I might. Hey, Mike, you know, I got this this supplement. You might try it. It'll you know, help you put on weight. Like, never ever you know so when i read about alvin roy um you know bringing his his uh you know steroids from the weight from the weightlifting world into the football world i I, i'm i'm perplexed you know because here i was an absolute perfect candidate for it and he never never tried to get me to take them and you know and i i trusted my elders in those days, and i I was I would have been susceptible. i I would have likely tried it if 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 he had proposed it, but he didn't, you know so so I, I think Alvin sometimes gets um, um, more blame than than he deserves for having you know turned so many guys onto steroids that ended up destroying their lives or whatever.
0: Yeah, from from what I read, it kind of sounded like when he first got on with the Chargers, you know, he had recommended it. But, you know, once the doctors had said, hey, this is actually having an adverse effect on people, and they found out, I guess, five weeks after the cycle had begun, you know, they pretty much said, no, we're not going to do this anymore. And I think, you know, like Ron Mix and a lot of guys have said it was the actual like weight training program and not the steroids that contributed to their, their good season that year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, well, that makes sense to me. Yeah. yeah. Now, you mentioned earlier while you were at, uh, in college and you went to school at Notre Dame, like you said, uh, that, you know, you had like sort of like a personal goal or personal journey like in college that you know wasn't exactly that well known to other people and it sounded like from what i read you know you were also looking to do well in college but you didn't necessarily have you know the dream of being a football hero like maybe some other people had had so how, how do you kind of like walk that line in college of wanting, wanting to compete with the best people on your team but you know you also have your other academic life that you're focusing on because you're not just solely focused on football as well
1: well i mean again uh you know, I keep saying this, how fortunate I was, you know, to come from my generation and, and the world I came from, but, uh, you know, I, I think of my college football experience as being incredibly fortunate. Okay, so I was a walk-on, and th- this is back before freshman religion, so as, as a freshman at Notre Dame, uh, you know, we had our own freshman team, and we played three games, and and. You know, we scrimmage with each other, and we scrimmaged against the varsity. You know, I, I lined up against Alan Page, and hoped he didn't crush me, and you know <laughs> that sort of stuff. But you know, I, I as an 18-year-old kid from Spokane, Washington, uh, thought of myself as a defensive end, and weighed, I think, about 205 pounds, and uh, I had never, in playing high school football in Spokane, seen anybody on the field who weighed over 220 who wasn't just big and fat, right? Yeah. And the smallest scholarship offensive lineman, you know, was about 240 pounds. You know, they all came from Ohio and, and uh, Pennsylvania and, and uh, Michigan and so on. And, uh, you yeah, know, it was just, oh my goodness, you know, I'm, I'm in over my head, but, you know, my, my, my motivation was to prove that I could play with them. Yeah? And uh, uh, I, I, I you know, I drove myself and, you know, n- nobody could have been aware of what I was doing, but I was trying and and, and, and I actually did well. I, I started one of those three freshman games of defensive end. I just beat out the other guy by by being tougher in practice, you know, being being uh, more effective in practice and all that. Um, but, you know, I, I was in kind of a separate world as a walk-on, right? You know, the the scholarship players, you know, were a a group that I wasn't a part of, that I was trying to become a part of. And so I, you know, I was there, i had been valedictorian in my high school class, of course, I'm going to go to college with an academic emphasis. And, and I I started college at Notre Dame as, you know, an academic achiever, you know, and, and that was my primary orientation. And then you know, oh, in the afternoon, I'll try this football kind of stuff. And, you know, it wasn't quite that casual. It was really important and meaningful to me. But there, there was never, ever any doubt w- which one mattered more in my long-term future than the academics or the athletics. Um, so I was I was an outsider in that football world, you know, which, which limited the, the kind of experience I could have. But at the same time, I was getting the best education that Notre Dame had to offer. Um, and this is this is a generational thing too, I think. You know, I, I don't know how you can play college football today without making academic sacrifices.
2: Right. You know,
1: you know, the NC2A's own surveys say that players put in 44, 45 hours a week on football practice, and that was 10 years ago. It's probably more than that now, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't know how you can be you know, When I had physics labs as a freshman, I came late to practice so I could do my physics lab. That's what you did at Notre Dame in 1966, right? right. Uh, and and uh, I, I'll bet that's even hard to pull off at Notre Dame today, you know, and right back in 1966. So I was a student at Notre Dame playing football and playing football with this private, personal passion that was really important to me. Uh, and then, you know, w- when I got my break and things changed, and all of a sudden I was a backup center, at the beginning of my junior year, and then started became a starter halfway through my, my junior season. It, it, it was sort of wonderful, not sort of. It was wonderful. I mean, I can I I don't have a great memory, but I have a vivid memory of the first game I started in in nineteen. It would have been nineteen sixty eight. Against Illinois at home, and you know we blew them out. And and Ara Parsegian, the coach, you know, sat his starters for the fourth quarter. And I can remember sitting on the bench on the sidelines, just this feeling of unbelievable satisfaction for having just played my first game as a starting center at the University of Notre Dame. I I, I did it. I made it. You know that kind of feeling. You but as I say, but it was always my my, my private personal sort of short term hugely important crusade alongside, you know, my my life's ambitions, you know, right. to to be to do something in the world.
0: Well, it's also like being the fact that you played for such a – obviously Notre Dame maybe not doesn't have the same prestige now as it once did, but like to be able to play on the same field or for the same university as a lot of the legends in years past, that also had to feel uh, fulfilling in its own right too.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I was a Catholic kid, you know, mm-hmm. grew up in Spokane, Washington, you know, far from Notre Dame, but I'm not even sure how I picked it up back then uh you know i i knew I knew all about Newt Rockney i knew some I knew it when Eric Parcegan came to Notre Dame from Northwestern in in nineteen sixty four uh you know I knew John, John Hewart had won the Heisman Trophy a few years before I got there uh, yeah i I knew the Notre Dame story and the mystique and you know, you, you arrive on campus as a freshman, and there's the Rockne Memorial at one end of the quad, and there's touchdown Jesus on on the 13-story library, and you know, there, there's all of this kind of myth saturating the place, and and I certainly absorbed that, and and to feel a part of that was really 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 special. It was really important to me. Uh, so I, I don't I don't for a moment you know want to you know, minimize the, the, the importance of it to me. It's just that it was never an importance totally out of whack with what had to be my lifelong plans, you know. I, I, you know, I knew football under the best of circumstances ends when you're 30, 35 years old. Um, you got half your life to go and, you know, most of your working life to go. And, and you know, I, I, I was never, you know, it, it wasn't that I was a preternaturally wise kid. It's just that I never had pressures put on me to make me understand anything other than that. That, yeah. that you know, was important was school and what school led to.
0: Now, whenever you decided to play professional football, when you were drafted by the Chiefs, was that, you know, obviously when you have these very long-term plan in mind of wanting to teach and, you know, continue grad school, uh, you know, was this still something you decided to go with just to see from a competitive standpoint, how you would stack up with the best as a player? I mean, was that, because obviously at this point you, you were very focused on, uh, life after football, but you, you still decided to go through at the professional level is you just wanted to see as a competitor, if you could hold your own.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, I had finished a kind of fairy tale experience at Notre Dame and, um, You know, I was intrigued by the idea of playing professional football and, you know, being in South Bend, Indiana, in the late 60s, uh, and as a center, you know, the ogre who loomed in my imagination was Dick Butkus, you know, out there for the Bears. And I thought, if I tried to play this, he'd kill me. (laughs) But, you know... uh, but, you know, it was still professional football, you know, and, and I dreamed about professional football when I was a little kid and all that kind of thing. And so if the opportunity arose, yeah, I, went, I wanted to try it. Um, and I, I was a fifth-round draft choice, you know. Mm-hmm. They, they, nobody was beating down my door to get at me, but, you know, they, somebody decided I was good enough to, to, to give, a, give it a shot. And I was perfectly willing to give it a shot. If, so long as it didn't interfere with graduate school, when, mm-hmm. when I got into graduate school, if they told me, "Sorry, you you either report in September or you know you know you can't be admitted," I would not have played in the NFL. But because you know the school that you know went to were willing to allow me to come in January, uh, it it worked out ideally, and so then I arrived in Kansas City, you know to see how it went. Yeah. And it wasn't nearly as important to me in Kansas City as it had been at Notre Dame to, to prove that I could make it. Whatever I needed to prove to myself about myself through football, I did at Notre Dame. In Kansas City, it was an additional really, really interesting experience with a really interesting group of guys that, uh, that, um, I wanted to keep going as long as I can. My master plan was, okay, a PhD takes four years doing it this way, going to school just two terms a year, let's say six years. So my master plan was to stay in the NFL for six years, uh, Higher. At the same time, I got my PhD and then find a teacher job. That, that was the master plan. And if ever graduate school and football collided with each other, it had to be graduate school. Mm. So that was the long-term plan, the long-term priority. Uh, but as long as it didn't collide, then i keep going. Well, it, it ended prematurely. I played only four because um, I got cut by the Chiefs at the end of the first player strike in 1974. Uh, But unlike most NFL players who get cut, um, particularly if they get cut sooner than they'd anticipated, they have this great uncertainty facing them when, when, when they leave. And for me, I went back to Stanford and finished my PhD and and then went on to, to, you know, my academic career. So, yeah, I keep, I keep saying this, but I really, you know, it's it just so obvious to me. I was so fortunate to, to be, you know, in this playing in the circumstances in which I was playing it were possible because of the generation that I was right. part of possible because of my family possible because of the schools and, you know, the, the whole environment that I, that I lived in, uh, you know, I didn't have to plot this thing out against all the odds or anything like that. I just had to go with what I had sort of grown up understanding made sense.
0: Now, after you were cut from the Chiefs, you spent, I believe, a season or a half a season with the Canadian uh, football team, the Tiger Cats.
1: Yeah, yeah. I I got a, a call. I went home. I, you know, I, I was angry, of course. And, you know, this is something I've done for what 18 of the first 26 years of my life, and and it had ended prematurely and, and in an ugly way, you know, being being, being uh, cut from the team under circumstances that didn't make much sense to me. Mm-hmm. And so when I got a call from the team in Canada, the Hamilton Tiger Cats, uh, it I, I I jumped on it. It gave me an opportunity to walk out on my own two feet rather than at the end of, of somebody's boot, you know? So I played out the season. They start their season earlier because their winters come earlier. And so I played, I think, nine games in, in Hamilton and, you know, it, you know, was kind of a stud offensive lineman in a way. And uh, that was sort of gratifying to my bruise Vigo at the end, but, basically what it allowed me to do was to stop when i was ready to stop rather than when somebody else told me I, I could have continued playing in canada had i chosen to but but at that point what would what would be the point you know right i was all i had to do is finish my dissertation and i could go about my lifelong business do you, um,
0: do you think that going out on your own terms also made you not feel bitter towards the game after you had left you
1: know I, I suspect it helps helped a lot. Yeah, I mean, I I, I I don't know how embittered I would be. You know, when when I finished in Canada and went went back to Stanford and then to Oregon State for for my first job, I, I didn't watch much football for several years, but I didn't I didn't feel estranged from it or angry at it or alienated from it. I just you know I just done it so long, you know, at the, at the highest level playing with my teammates in Kansas City that uh, what I saw on TV just wasn't very interesting to me. It, it, or, it just didn't pull me in. And, and maybe I was protecting myself, my my fragile ego a little bit. I don't know. Uh, but but I, I, I wasn't bitter. I was just, you know, relatively um, uninterested in the game at that point. But had had it ended before Canada you know may, may, maybe my my ego would have been a little more bruised my feelings a little stronger
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, you know I, I yeah it, it, it was a nice way to go out nice way to go out
0: yeah. Now to sort of uh switch to um, a little bit of uh, you know, football in the media and some of the topics you touched on on King football uh, first you know football it doesn't have the vast library of fiction work you know say like baseball or boxing or some other sports uh, but do, are there any books or short stories or any stories from those old pulp novels that really stand out to you as like you know great reads some of your favorites pertaining to football. Bro, yeah.
1: You mean stories that, that, that ordinary citizens would like, rather than professors of English. Oh, both. Yeah. Well, you know, there, there's, there's a famous short story by a guy named Irwin Shaw called The 80 Yard Run from 1941, and that's what I think it was, about the aging football player, uh, Christian Darling, who back in college, it was in practice, he had the spectacular 80-yard run. And then his life, you know, was a long decline after that. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that's kind of one of the classic motifs in, in, in American sports. You know, the aging, aging athlete and the former athlete trapped in, in, in his youth and all that sort of thing. I, you know, I think, I think this was kind of a bigger part of the culture. When, when I was in, in, in school and coming out of football and so on, because it was something I was very much aware of, very much aware of avoiding, you know, not becoming one of these guys or not becoming the, the 40-year-old guy who goes down to the bar on Friday nights in the fall and talk can, can do nothing but talk about, you know, his junior year in high school, you know, when he scored that touchdown. And, oh, you know. Right. You know, yeah. So Erwin Shaw's 80-yard run is is one of those. Um, You know, more recently, there's a a very wonderfully strange novel called End Zone by Don DeLillo, who's a very well-known writer, and End Zone is not as well-known as as some of his other novels, but it's just really, really interesting. Um, Yeah, there's a handful of, of... you know, kind of semi-classic football texts. Uh, And then a lot of just formula stories, generic stories, some of which are fun and mostly interchangeable. Um, You know, there's a guy, my my favorite writer right now is a guy named Jimmy Hopper, James Hopper,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: who played football at Cal in the 1890s and then went on and wrote, I don't know, fifteen twenty football stories about it, uh, and and it, it's about the experience of somebody playing back, you know, when the game was so strangely not like it is today, and so on. But but I don't know that that that, that would have much popular interest with, with readers today.
0: Yeah, I have two magazines. Uh, it's like football action, and I think maybe it's just called football from, from you know the forties and fifties. And uh, there was one story. Um it's kinda of like uh the motif of like, you know, the mobster tries to get him to throw a game. You know that, that 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 conventional narrative, and somehow like he gets out of it, and there's like a damsel in distress, some sort of femme fatale also in there. Um, I can't remember, I can't remember what that one name that one was called, or four, it was called Fourth Quarter Hellion. They had great names too. Yeah, and then there's another one called like the, the Lost Eleven, which follows you know a freshman football team and sort of like their journey together. Um, you know through. Um, you know, their senior year of college, and that one was a pretty interesting one. But it, it is interesting how a lot of them just seem to repeat the same, you know, formula over and over again, you know, because it's it's not like Western or you know, like detective where you can have like a little bit of a variety. Whereas like football, you know, you, you're kind of a team, and there's only so many ways you could tell that one story, you know, or in that same setting. Yeah.
1: You know, and, and the thing is, you know, to to have a story, you, you need to have a hero. Yeah, and your hero has to triumph. But he has to triumph over obstacles, and he probably has to lose somewhere along the way. So one of the challenges for writers is, so how do you get this perfect hero of yours to screw up or to somehow you know, have to overcome you know, the shame of the, you know, so gamblers and gangsters is one of the ways to do it. You, you just kidnap him, keep him out of the big game. But because you kidnap him, and then he shows up and scores the winning touchdown, you know, and so yeah, yeah that 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 works. So that's that's how those gamblers and gangsters got into a lot of those stories.
0: Yeah, <clears throat> I think that was the plot in uh, Bonzo Goes to College. Yeah, oh
1: yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. The movie, the football movies, do the same thing that the, the stories do. Yeah.
0: What about what about football movies? Are there any that uh, stick out to you?
1: Well. Um, the, the, there's some really funky 1930s college football musicals that are that are you know mostly mediocre but in really interesting ways and and, and the best of them is called rise and shine from about 1941 and it's from the James Thurber story um, um, based on um, his being an undergraduate student at Ohio State in the early '30s, and and the football star in in, in his story is a guy named Boley Bolankowicz. You, know, <laughs> you can imagine that he's big and dumb, right? Uh-huh. Uh, and and he has to pass his exams in order to be eligible for the big game, and you know the whole thing. It, you know, it's just a hoot. Uh, but um, you know. One, in general, both with movies and with, with with books, and you know some of this from having read King Football, what's really interesting is the cast of characters that get into these things over and over again, the, the conventional characters. So like Bully Belenkiewicz is the dumb jock, you know, and you know we're so familiar with, with the stereotype of the dumb jock. Where, where did the dumb jock come from? You know, college football is football played by Young men at college, you know. So how did the image of the dumb jock come in? Well, part of it was that kind of racist, anti ethnic bias in the twenties and thirties where anybody named Balenkowitz, you know, Polish or Irish or Italian or whatever, was was considered, you know, lesser and all that. And so right. You know, once these guys start going to college, then it becomes possible to have the stereotype of the dom jock, you know, and they're usually comic figures, but you know, there's kind of a, you know, a, a little bit of nastiness <laughs> underlying them. You know, the big booster. I mean, you know, you know, boosters. We live in this world of, of nil today that's just out of control. But it's just going back to the '30s when things were out of control and the big booster was, was funding everything. You never read about big boosters on the sports pages. You read about them in the in the stories in, yeah. in the magazines. You know, well, and, at the movies and all.
0: Well, did you did you ever see uh, Saturday's Hero?
1: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, the that. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's like one of the few movies that actually touches on that topic and does so like not in a comic way, because like a lot of the movies you're talking about from like the '30s and '40s, it's like a musical or a whimsical. Like they don't want to be too serious with it. But this was like, at least to my knowledge, the only movie of that, you know, like black and white period that actually looked at college football and you know, sort of the corruption underneath it in a very serious way.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and it was based on a movie on a novel by a guy named Miller Lampell who was one of the blacklisted screenwriters, you know, he was a leftist, you know. Uh So, you know, you know, exposing, you know, corruption in college football was a leftist conspiracy back in nineteen thirty-nine. You know, that's why there weren't others, you know, in the theaters and in the bookstores.
0: Yeah. Well, that's also it's also a good movie, too, because, like, sometimes, you know, football action in those movies aren't really all that believable. But that was actually yeah. one that actually did show, like, good Corey, choreographed action as well. And Jim Thorpe, all-American dude, does a pretty well, well-known well job, too. And especially because, like, Thorpe played in the early, you know, like, 1906, 7. And they were pretty accurate with how they kind of conveyed football action back then, like the checkered fields and uh, things of that nature, too.
1: But, yeah, yeah you could not film real football action with the real collisions and so on. Yeah. Because, you know, you got actors there, you know, there, there's liability and all. The, the movie actually that I remember as the first, oh my goodness, that's the real thing, was um, North Dallas 40, mm. which is like 1974. And they have uh, this one scene where it's, it's just a head-on collision that's just an explosion, you know. Like, like, like you see in actual football games, but this was, this was found. And, uh, yeah, that, that, you know, that's, that's pretty recent from my perspective on you know, 1974, but that's the first movie that I really remember having football action that looked like football.
0: Did you ever see uh, number one with Charlton Heston?
1: Yeah. Long time ago. Long yeah. Time ago.
0: I've talked to because sometimes I review movies on the show, and uh, you know, people always, from what I read back then, they didn't really buy him as an NFL quarterback. But you know, to me, when you look at like a picture of Tom Brady at forty, and then you look at Daryl LaMonica or George Blanda when they were playing, like to me, it's believable that a guy that looked like Charlton Heston could be like an NFL quarterback. You know?
1: But 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 what defeats him is when they actually try to do what a quarterback does. I mean, you know, it, it's it's not a simple thing for an actor to you know, cock the ball and throw a pass and have it look like an actual quarterback throwing a pass. Yeah. Uh, that, that that that's where they stumble. Yeah. He looked he looked the part but, but
0: you know, didn't play the part. Yeah. 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 Well, you know what I think would be a cool movie to see like if uh have you ever seen LeMond's the Steve McQueen movie? It's basically uh, it's
2: basically like a, a race. It, the what? A race
0: yeah it's uh it's supposed to be like a fictional documentary but not like in the sense of like a mockumentary where they gave interviews it just like has a camera on the Le Mans race that Steve McQueen is fictionally racing in but you know there's like there's there's like a half hour in the beginning of the movie without any dialogue you know so many stretches of the movie don't really have a plot you're just watching a race unfold over the course of a couple days like a Le Mans event and I think it would be cool to show like one game uh in the NFL, not necessarily today, but you know, whether it was, you know, in the forties, fifties, sixties, just to see how everything went down, you know, sort of from like a multiple viewpoints going in and out. I think that would be really cool to see, like just football action from like a cinematic standpoint.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I'm sure NFL Films has the archival footage to do this, but right. uh- yeah. Somebody's got to do it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. How big was uh, NFL films on you with uh facenda and Sable? Like uh, I, I guess you were in college when they really started putting out films and uh, whatnot. Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I, I, I wasn't much aware of them at all. Uh, or, or at least aware of them as this is NFL films doing this stuff. I mean, I saw highlights and all that sort of thing, but I, I, I didn't become really aware of them and, and Huge fans of the work they do until the 1890s. When I, I mean, 18, 1990s. Mm-hmm. When I started writing, and in, in early 2000, when I started writing about about the NFL, and uh, you know, NFL films, they they don't do the same stuff today very much at all. But but they were the, I mean, they were the epic poet of, of professional football. I mean, they they created. Football, larger than life. You know, John Facenda's voice is, you know, God on high. You know, and 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 the way they they did the weather and the coloring, the sound and and slow motion collisions and all that kind of stuff. It's really, really pretty extraordinary cinema. Uh, uh, I, I I met Sable a couple times, interviewed him for a documentary that I was helping a. a A a guy I knew do uh, his last interview, I believe, probably before he died. Mm. um, He was he was a classy guy. You know, he 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 agreed to this interview because. um, I think basically because when the NFL was doing its. um, 50th, what would it have been in 1995? 1995
0: doesn't make any sense. It was the 75th anniversary.
1: Yeah, it does make sense. 75th anniversary, they did a program at the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. and invited me to be on a panel with Tech Shram and I can't remember who else, and Steve Sable, uh, um, you know, uh, hosted it or, you know, posed the questions and all that kind of stuff. And, and, And because I had, you know, given my time to him for that, he gave his time to me for this interview. I thought that was really classy, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and the work he was doing uh, there, and he had a guy working for him named Steve Seidman who was doing a lot of these films and just loved the old archival footage. You know, they got me as a, one of the, the talking heads on, on a bunch of those things. You know, I loved doing those things, and, and I loved, you know, working with Steve Seidman as a, as a kind of a colleague, you know, yeah. You know, sharing Interest with this stuff and and Sable as well. I mean, I I didn't have a close relationship with him, but I I really respected the work they were doing.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, and you could definitely tell watching those films that you know he was someone that wasn't really just influenced by like highlight packages, you know, like he was influenced by a lot of the movies that he saw from like either Kurosawa or Hitchcock. You know, he really kind of took what he saw from those movies and tried to incorporate them in a sports highlight documentary package that some you know, cross between all of those, you know, you can't really like give a, a clear distinct genre for what those movies are.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I I, I assume that, that that work from NFL films in the 90s and early 2000s is, is respected by film people. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. There's
1: you know, like, football.
0: yeah, yeah there, there's actually, I don't know if it's true or not, but there's sort of like that urban legend that uh, Sam Peckinpah actually, when he was filming the wild bunch, um, was that influenced by like the slow motion action from uh, the football and you know close ups and stuff like that? Which would actually be really cool if that was the case.
1: Yeah, if it isn't true, it should
0: be. Yeah, right. Yeah, we'll make it true. Just a couple questions to close off here. Um, to your point about NIL, the NCAA, um, and obviously with a lot of you know teams kind of leaving conferences that they've been in for so many years and kind of putting you know long-standing rivalries potentially obsolete uh where do you kind of see like the cultural uh importance of college football going as you know more and more teams pretty much just you know go to these super conferences and nil you can have athletes coming and going from universities um seemingly every year you know where do you kind of think this is all headed from a fan standpoint and how it kind of connects to the university even
1: yeah well <laughs> The question, real question is, will it connect the university anymore? I, mm. You know, it is it transformed beyond recognition. You know, as as somebody who who is a beneficiary of the system, uh, I resisted for a long time the idea that I, that the players should be paid. But you know, many, several years ago, I came around, and realized, wait a minute, wait a minute. You know, when you're paying coaches these millions of dollars, you know, the only justification for not playing the players was if you're giving them a. A real, true college education that gives them access to a middle-class life when they're done playing football, then you can make the argument that you are that you are paying them something comparable to what <clears throat> the dollars would be. But um, it, it's been so untrue for so long that that's what football players and and men's basketball players were getting out of the agreement. You know, an education and a middle-class life for the sake of your athletic services. But guess what? You know, the education isn't a real education, or you know, it, you, you know the whole the whole story. And mm-hmm. so, I came around several years ago, like I say, to realizing the players had to be paid. But but the ineptitude of the NC2A in handling that and figuring out some way to do it in a meaningful way. Um, you know, is is just kind of mind boggling, but it's too late now. I mean, you know, college football players today have absolute free agency and absolute unlimited access to, to money because they don't have a union like the Players Association. There, there, there would be no college dra- draft or uh, salary cap in the NFL if the NFLPA did not agree to those. As necessary to the good of the overall operation, to the benefit of everyone. So now you have, you know, a situation where individuals can just get whatever they want, whenever they want it, you know, as long as somebody's willing to give it to them. Uh, and and I don't think that can be reversed. You right. know, as soon as you try to reverse that, you know, as soon as you try to cap, say nil, all you got to do is have one player sue. And it gets thrown out because of um, you know a, a violation of his workers' rights and all that. You know, if if the players were unionized then they could negotiate this stuff. But how do you unionize players that are, you know, around for four years, five years? So I don't see I don't see how this is gonna be capped in, in any meaningful way. Which means then of course that, you know, the teams that can can you know guarantee the most money and all that? Da 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 da. You know, so so maybe what we're moving toward is the kind of super conference you were alluding to. You know, it won't be 60 teams. It'll be smaller than that, maybe half that. Uh, but you know, in the meantime, all of the traditional rivalries and you know old alignments, you know, have com- will have completely disappeared. You know, now when I say traditional, I, I remind myself I'm 74 years old. You know, my sense of what a tradition is is not what your sense of a tradition is probably even let alone you know a, a 20 year old today and all that. So so my guess is the loss of of, of tradition you know is more deeply felt the older you are you know the older you know, the longer you, you think those traditions have been around. Uh, but actually the traditions I'm aware of you know the three the four major bowl games. You know that that didn't come in until the 50s when I came in. You know, so sure. that's not going to zip around forever. So where it goes, who knows? But but I, I'm at Oregon, I'm you know a retired professor from Oregon State University. How's Oregon State University going to compete in this world? Corvallis, Oregon, a town of 50,000. Uh, you know, where where is the NIL coming from here? You know, down the road, University of Oregon has has big bucks. Bill Phil Knight you know, to take care of things, but, but, but that's, that's an anomaly. That's a, that's a one, one time deal. Uh, you know, what's going to happen to the Pac-12? You know, how, how are Cal and Stanford going to accept, you know, Boise state and San Diego state as peer institutions, you know, mm-hmm. you know, college you know, football conferences, you know, we're, we're part of university relations more generally. You know, institutions came together as like-minded institutions. So, what, what, what is the Pac-12 going to do now that it's lost its LA schools? Uh, you know, I don't know what's going to happen there. Um, yeah, it, it, it's it's just going to be utter utter chaos in a wild west, like everybody's saying for a while. But I don't know how you cap the well OS. and so there's going to have to be some kind of Darwinian shakeup of, of the whole operation. And I don't know who's going to come out on top. You know, I keep thinking about those SEC schools. Yeah. Um, they're not in big media markets; they're in big football markets. But you know, uh, are, are they going to remain on top forever? You know, uh, or is or is somehow, you know, the, the sports media going to drag things? You know. To, to L.A. and New York, you know, I, I I don't know, but it's 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 going to be a real mess for a long time, and I think a lot of you know Oregon State is completing a hundred and sixty million dollar uh, remodel of its football stadium, mm. which will seat five thousand when it's done. So it's it's going to have hundred and sixty million dollars more of bonded indebtedness. There are institutions all over the country. You know that are paying off their stadiums, so what happens when they can't fill their stadiums anymore? What happens when the t v revenue doesn't you know fill in for they can't fill their stadium you know it, it's 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 gonna be it's gonna get really messy in 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 a whole variety of different ways around the country,
0: yeah well, it kind of goes to the point in your book you know when you mention like the big stadiums you know it's kind of like you know, with the rise of cable and now with even streaming, it's like, you know, football kind of went from being a little bit of like a mythology to being just pure entertainment now where you just can't escape it. That's played not really by heroes, but by celebrities now, you know?
1: Yeah, exactly. I I, I cringe when I see um, Bryce Young in one of these uh, TV commercials, you know? You know, th- this is a, a sophomore quarterback at Alabama, you know, in these commercials. And I think, he, so he... Puts in so many hours on football that he doesn't have enough to be a truly, you know, committed student. But now he's got to put in money on marketing himself, you know. And he, he's just, you know, kind of an extreme case because he's he's so visible doing this on these national commercials. But but what what, what are these kids going to do, you know, when they're trying to balance classes, football, and branding themselves and marketing themselves and you know meeting the expectations of their sponsors and so on uh it's
0: it's going to present a whole new set of issues
1: yeah yeah and 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 again i'll repeat what i said over and over from the beginning i am so glad to be old to have
0: been
1: through a simpler world that i went through
0: yeah yeah, I I envy you in in a lot of ways that way. Um, what about like last question, like future projects? Do you have anything in the works or anything that you'd like to get to?
1: Well, in in uh, in retirement, you know, I no longer teach, and go to meetings, mm-hmm. but I can keep writing. And 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 I finished one book a few years ago, uh, a, a kind of kind of labor of love, a picture book mm-hmm. called "The Art of," with all of these images, you know, from. 1890s up to the 20s when things are still in the public domain and I don't have to pay fees to reproduce them. And there's some just wonderful, you know, football art from from those years. And so that was fun. And what I'm working on now is a book about um, well, okay, we haven't talked about this in the program, but we all know that what's hanging over football is CTE. And uh, what what we're going to do when we know more about you know what causes it and right. clear the chance and that kind of stuff and so it's made me think about the violence in football for a long long time you know toughness was being able to withstand the violence but you know, you know there there are limits to how much toughness you want to have if you want to you know keep your sense so anyway so I'm, I'm, I'm writing a book about you know, the role of violence in boxing and football, and, you know, just trying to figure it out, trace it through, you know, through books and movies and, yeah. you know, sports writing and magazine articles and all that kind of stuff, uh, and it's it's something that gives me something to do when I get up in the morning, and I don't have to go off to university and actually working a job you
0: know? yeah well that that's gonna be interesting because i've kind of wondered like about the modern fan like does the modern fan really gravitate to football a lot simply for the toughness and the hard hits like they did 10 or 15 years ago or is a part of it just like the offensive spectacle and the artistry that goes into the game more so than it did you know a decade or two ago
1: yeah well i mean the fundamental tension in football is between artistry and violence mm-hmm. you know And the way I would always explain it, you know, say to a group of students, you know, just picture a wide receiver going up to catch a pass at the same time that the the defensive back slams into him. There it is, you know, there's the artistry, the pass and the catch, and there's the violence. And one without the other would not be so powerful. You know, just a guy running down the field and catching the ball, big deal, you know, or just somebody hitting somebody, big deal. But somebody hitting person at the moment of balletic artistry, what's going to come out of that? Right. Now, you you want you want the guy to hang on to the ball, and that makes his accomplishment that much more impressive. You know, and that's what football is all about. Now, between the two, you know, what do fans prefer? The artistry or the violence? You know, everybody likes some of both, but some probably like one kind more than the other kind. You know, you know, it it used to be said that, you know, women like the artistry of football and men like the violence. It's it's not that simple.
2: It's not that simple. Yeah, I agree. But, but,
1: But, you know, when I watch NFL football today, uh, it doesn't seem, it doesn't seem tame, you know, the game is still plenty rough and violent and all that. Uh, the question is, is it still too violent? Uh, and we don't, we won't know that until we can diagnose CTE in living tissue. You know, yeah. once the scientists figure that one out, then we're going to know a whole lot more about just how, you know, how much, how much violence is possible to have in football.
0: Yeah, Jack Tatum used to have uh, in his autobiography had a suggestion where if you want to cut down on injuries, get rid of zone coverage and just have everyone play man to man, which is an interesting concept, frankly. But like you kind of wonder would that actually kind of help things because you don't have someone that's going to lay a guy out when he's coming across the middle or on like a shallow cross or something like that.
1: Yeah, and and, and Jack Tatum is not exactly the guy who's going to address him. You want, you want to make the game safe enough. You know what you do? You just take off the helmets. Right. You know, as soon as you take off the helmets, people, guys will protect their own faces and heads. Yeah. Um, but you won't have f- football. You know, you won't have American football. You know, you'll have something more like rugby again. And, you know, been there, done that, and didn't like it way back in, you know, the early 20th century. And so... Um, we can have guys shocked.
0: just... Guys could just be wearing nose guards again. yeah yeah Yeah. and that would be cool michael this was a pleasure to have you on the show i really enjoy your books and i enjoy talking to you and i'm really grateful you gave us uh, so much of your time so thank you and i'm really looking forward to uh, reading your work when it comes out
1: okay yeah good to talk to you Aaron.